Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is Pablo Savaleta. This is Troy Dini. This is Kevin Phillips. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I traveled to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, Keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter and we'll bring you joy. So the big interview is back with another cracking guest, a guy I like, a guy who's been helpful to me during my career, but a guy who, more importantly, scored the winning goal in Arsenal's last European trophy lift, who twice won the Golden Boot for being the top scorer in the English Premier League. It's Alan Smith. During this conversation, held in beautiful circumstances in Sotwell House under glaring sun right next to Arsenal's training ground at Colney, we talk about why Alan claims powerfully, that that 1989 last match of the season, victory at Anfield by George Graham's Arsenal, in which Alan scored and set up Mickey Thomas, is the single most iconic moment in English league football. Is he right? He talks about George Graham, the man who he says had the players a little bit frightened, but who changed all of them. We're going to give you a first-hand explanation of how the Scot held that Arsenal squad in thrall. And then, do you remember the Battle of Old Trafford? No, 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 not Martin Keown, not Ruud van Nistelrooy, Nigel Winterburn, Gary Pallister, Brian McClare, guest on the big interview, Anders Limpar. Anders Limpar boasting that he'd punched somebody and drawn blood. It's all here. This is the big interview with Alan Smudger-Smith helping him promote his entertaining autobiography, Heads Up. Have a listen. In our case, Ears On. It's the beginning of you and the sound you just heard was me putting down my mug of tea. But the sound you missed 
just before Neil pressed record was Alan Smith and Neil saying, lovely day, isn't it gorgeous? It's a scorcher. And that's my first question, Alan Smith. Welcome to the big interview. Thank you. Um, I nearly said, aha there. It was very partridge, <laughs> wasn't it? it was. <laughs> um, knowing me, knowing you. Um, everybody who listens to the big interview knows that I get a bit soppy about things. And here we are sitting in St Albans in Sopwell House, right next door to where for a number of years you trained a beautiful part of the world where you must have, in your broadcasting career, I suppose, come and waited for Arsene Wenger for his interminably delayed press conferences. Generally what I'm saying, with the green trees, the beautiful grass, the sunshine, England's lovely. There was a time when, never mind playing for Arsenal and earning good money and scoring goals and being famous, actually coming to work in this part of the world must have been the best thing. Well, when you're in that bubble and you've done it all your life, I suppose you don't tend to appreciate it as much as somebody coming in on their first day might feel. But I never lost sight of the fact that it was a fantastic job I was doing. And you were getting paid to stay fit, to play the game that you've always loved, to spend hours and hours with like-minded souls, teammates, friends, just having a laugh every day. As you say, out in the fresh air, I never became that blasé that it, it was just, you know, another day in the office, so to speak. It was always... It was always a good day when you got up. I mean, well, that's not strictly true, but when things were going well, it was always a good day, getting up, going into training, seeing the boys. It was brilliant. So the things that I was getting soppy about, like the smell in the cut grass, which still just does it for me. Yeah. But also <laughs> the sound of the boots on, on the hard floor or whatever, that, that I, I accept you take for granted. But I knew that you would reach for the, the, the dressing room camaraderie because I know that you were fit for it and... You had fun. We're, we're talking at the moment about your Arsenal experiences, mm. at Arv Church or Leicester or England, but if you were appreciating the camaraderie and the team spirit, whatever, you were in with a bunch of blokes who I think were quite different from you. Well, the way that Arsenal life was lived then was miraculous. Um, you say they're different, but there's always a broad cross section of characters in the dressing room, you know. But then there was somebody like David Rowcastle, who, you know, we were, we were quite similar in many ways. You know, we were family guys and uh, we used to love spending time with our kids and together as two families. And yeah, the, you know, there's all sorts of characters in a dressing room and those personalities don't always come out to the public eye, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I mean, my upbringing and my kind of route into the game was a bit different to most in terms of went to university or polytechnic as it was then, Coventry Poly. I wouldn't say I came in late. I mean, I became a pro at 18, which isn't mega late, but, uh, you know, I'd had that education beforehand. So um, people always used to say, oh, you know, if there was something they wanted to find, ask Smudge, he'll know. You know, it was one of them. He's, he's clever, uh, <laughs> which isn't always the case. But, uh, yeah, I was different from that point of view. But, you know, we've all got something very big in common, and that's our love of football. But the wildness. Yeah. I think I'm asking... When you're, you know, we're here partly to talk about the fact that you've written your own autobiography mm. without a ghost and it's called Heads Up. Now, in it, what comes out is that you're quite happy to have been a guy known for reason and common sense mm. and to try and avoid controversy and all that. There's a cross-section in a dressing room as well established. How does mm. it work? How does it blend? You know, when some of them are living in the most extreme way that successful footballers have ever lived... You know what, maybe the, the back four, Ray Parle, all of them said we lived hard, but set huge standards on the pitch, mm. made history. 
in the modern day, people would say this is impossible. But you were living a much more moderate life. You seem to be in your personality a much different kind of guy. Why doesn't it clash? Why wasn't there a point within this where you're like, well, you know, this isn't me? Or, or why were they so accepting of you living a quite different life? It's the knitting together that I like and I'd like to understand. Mm. They never questioned my lifestyle and I never questioned theirs. There were some lads that were like me. Nigel Winterburn, Lee Dixon, they went back to the family. So it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm apart from the crowd or anything like that. We all, we all got along great. That was, that was a feature of our time back then. Uh, different characters, but we respected each other because we were all doing jobs on the pitch. You know, if you weren't pulling your weight, if you were, had a different attitude in terms of your goals, if you were a bit selfish, then you would become ostracised. Mm. But if you had that team ethos, there was no problem at all. You know, that's just the way it was. And the drinking thing, it was a culture back then, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't something you thought, wow, he, he's going out for a few pints. He shouldn't be doing that. It was it's what happened. You know, you, you didn't do it the night before a game, or you shouldn't have. <laughs> Maybe some of the lads did occasionally. Across but... English football people did, <laughs> yes. We know they did. Yeah, that would have been the exception to the rule, though. You know, the, the Tuesday club at Arsenal was quite a famous institution. You know, we'd do a, a physical at Highbury if we hadn't got a midweek game. And... You know, run around the track, run up to the top of the North Bank, see who won, into the gym, five-a-side, get our gear on and into town. Of course, you had Wednesday off, come in Thursday, sweat it out, prepare on a Friday for Saturday. Unless the lads overstepped the mark and George Graham would get some letters from somebody complaining, as long as they were back at it Thursday, you know, he wouldn't ask questions. So it's something that I argued with over the many years of Walter Smith when I was beginning my career in Scotland. Just take the Tuesday club. Now everybody says, and, and for many years, don't drink, eat differently, stretch, relax, yoga, meditation, all the things, of sports science everywhere. And clearly, for the state of your body, for recuperation from injury, that drinking heavily, and, and for stamina and games and body shape, and all that wasn't great. But is it a fair principle to say that, because you used the word team ethos and then moved on, saying there was one how does one grow how, how does it happen because we've both seen very many groups of sports people who are fractured in their relationships mm. yours wasn't like that so the Tuesday club concept where everybody's like working hard on Tuesday mm. going there's a bevy around the corner mm. I'm going to go out and have an outrageous laugh with my mates while the rest of the world is working mm. was that a central motor in the success as well perhaps the team that drinks together Wins was one of the phrases back then. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, listen, not everybody used to go out. You know, we had some founder members, you, you'd know the names, Tony and Baldy Merce, those kind of characters, and then I'd dip in and out, as would some of the other lads. So it's not like it was 15 of us rampaging through London or anything like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that was fine, you know. We accepted that some people were different to others. And, I mean, in terms of the, the group, sometimes it clicks like that. It's not something that anybody's worked on. The chemistry's right. And, I mean, I think George Graham played a big part yeah. in keeping us all together and emphasising the fact that you have to work for your mate. You know, you have to back him up when he's in trouble. And that's why he never minded seeing us go out, I yeah. think. You know, he, he was in that dressing room. He saw us getting together. our gear on. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think he'd, he'd say, you know, have a good time, lads. Just don't overdo it. Mm. George is now, you know, known for being more urbane, always dressed impeccably, 
um, very elegant man in his attitudes and his words. Likes his tennis, been retired for a little while. But um, for those who are listening to this and don't know enough about George, explain two things about him. First of all, in what way was it possible for a manager then to kind of terrorise a group of grown men? Mm. And secondly, in London, when I was still in this country working, we used to go out to Langens, it was one of his favourite places, and Langens would always have to add onto the bill the, the tablecloths. Because George would get a pen or a pencil out and the pepper pots and he'd be drawing arrows and the pepper pots would He move. still goes there. I saw him not long ago in there. He loves it there and they still love him there. there. And mm. it's great when you go in there like the world comes to pay homage. Mm. It's fabulous to be there. And the big old picture of... I don't know if it's still there. The big it old is. picture of Stamford Bridge in the days when it was a dog track. Or whatever. Of course, mm. George had been playing there then. And, mm. Mm. And but the mad thing is, Frank McClintock always tells the famous story when they were in the dressing room after training and they were talking about the game on the Saturday and they were talking about different tactical things they might try, who's going to do what, and he'd go, put the ball away, lads, let's go and have a drink. You know, that was George back then. And Frank says, I cannot believe he became the person and the manager that he became. His personality or his kind of goals totally changed. You attribute a bit of that to Terry Venables, his, his best mate, who, who they, they got, I think Terry got married on the morning of a North London derby with George as his best man mm. and then George took him to Highbury and Arsenal to Spurs 4-0 <laughs> yeah. so there's, there's yeah, a wedding changes. there's a wedding present <laughs> thought you might like that one yeah you attribute that change in George partially to Terry yeah maybe I mean I wasn't around at the time but I think George needed the work and he, he went to QPR and, and then he got the taste for it he got the bug and developed from there and became very serious about it so he knew what it was like to be somebody who liked to drink because he was that person, but he became a, a kind of a furious worker. You know, his, his, his work ethos, go back to that phrase, was uh, phenomenal. Um, very dedicated, very single-minded in becoming a success as a manager. Amazing, you know, for so, those who knew him as a player, which I didn't. But, yeah, to see that change, it must have been quite something. Well, he was called Stroller, famously, yeah. because he would stroll around the midfield dishing out elegant passes. But... Describe. Do what Andy Melvin taught you at Sky and tell us you know, what we can't see. Describe George working for him. And how does one man hold a firm group of footballers, grown-up, boisterous, hard-nosed men, in such a grip? He was just one of those people that did have an aura about him. You were instantly respectful and a bit frightened of him. Uh, that's just the way he was. I suppose you can't manufacture that. Uh, it comes naturally. He was a manager that kept his distance from the players. You know, he was never going to socialise, become mates with us. He once made the mistake of walking into a bar in Puerto Banus in Spain and we were all up on stage singing and he did a quick about turn. And What were you singing? Oh, Georgie, Georgie, Stand By Me, the uh, Benny King classic. <laughs> <laughs> And you'd, you'd chosen the manager's name to... Yeah, I don't, yeah there was, we must have been talking about him and one or two of us were maybe in danger of being dropped and we got up on stage and we started singing Georgie's Georgie, Stand Georgie, By Me. Georgie, Georgie, <laughs> Stand By Me. That's it. He, he must have been really pleased when he came in and heard that nod. Yeah, because he normally did his homework. He'd normally know exactly where we were going and he'd know where he was going, probably somewhere nicer. Uh, <laughs> so he made a mistake that day, but... Yeah, he, he would always um, keep arm's length with... He, the only person he really got closer to was Tony Adams as his young captain. He uh, gave him a little bit more rope than he might have given us. But um, he was uh, somebody, yeah, that you definitely respected. 
if he gave you a bollocking, you knew about it. You, you wanted to please him, you know, he was Why? one of those managers. Why did you want to please him? You'd get a little pat on the back. Because he set such high standards, if you yeah. pleased him, you knew you'd reach those standards. And he set those standards every day of the week in training. And he, won, he did famously say, lads, looking back at the end of your careers, you'll think you haven't always enjoyed working with me, but you'd be pleased that you've put the work in because it would have been successful. You can look at the medals. You know, along the way, it might be a pain in the ass what I ask you to do, you know, how hard I am on you. But at the end of it, you've got these medals and, more importantly, these memories to show for it. And he was right. Can I venture? Were, were the majority of you better footballers? for him, for his presence? I don't know. He certainly pushed us hard. You could argue he restricted some of us. I mean, you'd ask the defenders under Arsene Wenger, all of a sudden they're dribbling up with the ball at the feet into the opposition's half. They might say George held them back a little bit. And it was always a thing with me, don't lose the ball, Alan, don't lose the ball. So sometimes you get a little bit tense about that. Oh, bloody hell, I, you know, I've got to keep hold of this. And, and that was counterproductive at times. So there was that, that side of him sometimes that didn't give you the freedom to express yourself. But on the other side of the coin, you were in a team structure, you knew exactly what was expected. And, and that gave you confidence when you went out onto the pitch. You were winning. We knew we were a good team. We, we knew what we had to do individually and collectively. And, and you go out onto the pitch thinking, yeah, we're better than this lot. You know, we're, we're more together, we're, we're better players, we've got more about us. I used to work in London, and I'm not a particularly uh, aggressive Scot, or I don't have a particularly Scottish accent, but very many senior people in, in England seem to think that the Scottish accent is a fabulous work tool. Somehow it adds an edge. Mm. You said that, maybe some players, that George could frighten some people. Now, I'm sure George didn't make a habit of belting people. So, did his Scottishness play a part in what you talked about there? Yeah, Lanarkshire tones, weren't they? Which were suited to oratory, really. I mean, he, he did give some great speeches in his time. He, he could find the right words, and also the way he put those words over in that accent, it just sounded right. Uh, I mean, Anfield was a great example. When we got docked two points after the Old Trafford brawl was another great example when he, he called us together at the training ground and just emphasised that we'd got to behave in the right manner. We were representing ourselves, our families, our football club. He said everyone out there wants to see us fail and, and he introduced that, that siege mentality, which you know isn't a new thing for managers, but... Um, it was a rousing speech. It was filmed, actually, and it's on the Arsenal archives. It went into folklore almost because there were shots of us sat there listening to him and looking up at him and nodding away. He got across what we had to do from then on. You know, we'd been docked two points, which was unprecedented, hasn't happened since. And he gave us the determination to kick on again. I don't want to go to this instant. As a journalist, you're at um, Old Trafford for another bumpy... Arsenal United match and you use your journalistic skills to describe it as you see it mm. you're true to your profession I'm aware that in telling this story you've referred to something that helped build to Anfield where we're going to go um, and we're going to put down Sergio Aguero in the process more of that later listeners <laughs> tell people about the Old Trafford brawl 
tell people about why there was two points docked. Ah, right. There's okay. a lot of listeners who simply don't know what you're referring to. No, quite. A, a thing started in 88, quarterfinal of the FA Cup. Manchester United came to Highbury. We ended up beating them 2-1. I got the opening goal in front of the North Bank, which was a great day for me. I'd been struggling a bit. But they won a penalty towards the end. Ryan McClare was going to take it. Now, Nigel Winterburn, I don't know if he'd been at him all through the match, but before he took the penalty, he was in his ear, whispering sweet nothings. And then Brian missed, and then Nigel's gone back for more, giving him stick. So that didn't end well. And it rumbled on, really, until that day at Old Trafford, the 1991 season. So the ball's played into me. Gary Pallister has climbed over the top, headed it down towards Dennis Irwin, and Nigel's ploughed into Irwin with a shocking challenge, really. (laughs) And then McClare's come in and kicked Nigel on the floor, and then all hell broke loose. And I looked at the YouTube clip whilst I was writing the book just to make sure I got all the facts right. And it's funny because I'm kind of strolling in in a reasonable manner to act as peacemaker. (laughs) From behind, Rocky and Mickey Thomas, you know, two South London lads that don't take any shit, they've sprinted past and started throwing punches, you know, before I could even do my Henry Kissinger bit. Um, And and they were proper punches as well. Yeah, yeah. Anders Limpar came in afterwards and he was absolutely buzzing because he said, oh, I caught Brian McClare behind the ear, he was bleeding, you know. So there were some proper punches thrown and um, the FA had obviously studied it in detail and decided we were more to blame than United. They got one point, yeah. us two. Yeah, it was a heck of a little scramble. I mean, sometimes you have melees and it's all people shoving people and trying to split them up. But the two managers, George and Fergie, came up the touchline to get involved to try and calm things down which in itself was a bit unusual so it was quite a big event at the time it's and it's sort of because i'm aware that one of the things i do i'm a bit hypocritical i eulogize i get very romantic about the brand of football i see in spain but the beauty of football football is intelligence it's the, the technique we're going to come to that with you um particularly again back to anfield but i grew up with football you know even the great players not the cloggers were handy and there was an edge of, if not violence, certainly confrontation. Mm. You sorted things out on the pitch. As a fan, I liked watching a bit of that. Mm. It was part of my entertainment. Now, it would be like turning up naked in church on a Sunday. It's like, no way. Mm. You know, there's nothing further from the brand image of the Premier League and, mm. and also what Sky likes to show. And, you know, it, it just wouldn't be tolerated, not because grown men shouldn't be brawling but because it, it tarnishes the image mm. well I can't speak for you but I am asking a bit of that every now and again was part of what made me love football mm. and fans still love to see a good tackle don't they and maybe they like to see one of their own players get one over on the yeah. opposition maybe do him you know I mean I always maintain that the, the dirtiest players were the best players, weren't mm. they? Because they were the cleverest ones. They could always get there first and know what they were, they were doing. I mean, somebody like Vinnie Jones has gone down as this hard man, but you could see him thundering along 10 yards away and you could avoid the, this tackle if you had anything about you. But somebody like Graham Souness, I mean, I remember first playing against him at Anfield and I've received the ball and, he's, and I've seen him coming, kind of, but I couldn't avoid it. He's gone over the top of the ball, straight into my shin pads with his six studs and I could feel my shin bending inwards. And he just, you know, gave me a growl. 
people like Johnny Giles. Johnny's still hard as nails. Just such dirty players, but brilliant players. Johnny was a very good footballer. Yeah. For people who don't know him. Yeah. You know, Leeds, Man United, yeah. West Brom manager, Ireland International, great football brain. Yeah. Hard as nails. Exactly. And he would say the same. Uh, I suppose a little bit more up to date, Dennis Bergkamp had that side to him. He could top top you if he, he was of a mind to. And there weren't many better out there no. than uh, the Iceman. So um, it is an aspect that's, that's gone out of the game. Obviously now we want to sanitise it a bit more. Health and safety, endangering an opponent and all the rest of it. There is a danger that it goes too far. There is, isn't there? Mm. I'm not saying we have... But that simmering sense of aggrievement and aggression that doesn't end in broken bones or people's career being ended or any of that nonsense, I think we, I think we need an edge to football. Oh, I mean, I looked at Marcus Rashford sending off the other day. And yeah. I thought, for goodness sake, you, he's going to miss three games for that. For that. When, when Phil Barsley did something very similar. And I just think he's not endangering the safety of opponent. It's a bit of aggression. Yeah. That's all it is. It's yeah. just a, he's reacting to something that Barsley did. Why send him off for that? I think we. I think one of the things, apart from me, I'll now stop sort of trying to endorse sanitised mm. violence. But we forget a lot about what we ask of footballers. We ask them to be trained to an inch of their lives. We almost brainwash them with the coach like George or whoever you might be working for into this is everything this week. This is so important. You must win this. Don't let us down. You've got to produce week after week, day after day, year after year. That changes you. That's a form of brainwashing. Send them out into contact sport. Drama happens. Things go against you. Fan yells at you, yells about your family or somebody does you on your ankle or whatever. And then there's absolutely no room for mm. uh, bursting emotions or a retaliation or you know, a, mm. a three and a half minute loss of temper. Mm. That's not right. Mm. It's not human mm. to, to think that. That's where I think you know the people setting making the rules don't have that understanding. They are trying to clean it up. They think they're doing it for the better, but that, I think they just have to be careful. What would you tinker with to, to just draw things back a little bit if you had the rules or the, the laws or the punishments in your hands? It's that understanding of a tackle sometimes yeah. when you're just trying to recover the situation. You, slightly heavy touch you dive in because it's instinctive Instinctive. you're trying to win the ball again and yeah you catch the lad on the ankle but it wasn't a malicious action no intention no it's about I I can correct that mistake you can't hold yourself back in that instance but you're getting punished for something you can't do anything about small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I hope I'm going to skip away from this back in time because if I'm right in my chronology, that, that Old Trafford bust up probably um, was part of what drew you together again and pushed you on towards a double. But before that, what would you call Anfield in 1989? Your contention and heads up in the book that we've got in front of us where I'm pinching some of my questions from. Your contention is that it is what? the single most iconic moment in English football? Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. I can't think. I mean, obviously, Aguero's goal for Manchester City is the second best <laughs> in, Premier, <laughs> in Premier League terms. That's great, and it? Was it, Would you like to reach over and pat him on the head, patronising as well? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, second best. I mean, I don't see why there's any reasons for argument. It was a standalone game. It had been put to the end of the season because of Hillsborough. We were due to play Liverpool, what was it, in April. So after Hillsborough, that game got put to the end. Everybody else had finished. So it was a standalone game on a Friday night between the two teams, the only two teams capable of winning the title. So that on his own takes it away from Manchester City QPR, who were floundering at the bottom of the Premier League. Liverpool, you have to remember what a team they were then. You know, never mind about rarely losing at Anfield. To lose 2-0 it was almost unheard of, or to lose by two goals. World-class players, Barnes, Rush, Hansen, Beardsley, you know, Aldridge. Hell of a team, hell of a team. So to go there and to win, and then to get the second all-important goal in the final seconds, it was just the stuff of film scripts. Funnily enough, a couple of films have been made about it. <laughs> Fever Pitch and recently 89, the kind of docu-film. It, it was incredible. It, it was special. Um, everybody does tend to remember, if they've you know, got any connection with football, where they were that night. It was a bit of a JFK moment. And that's why I do think it's the most famous moment in English football history. Aguero's was incredible drama. But... You know, the overall context, who they were playing, and I just don't think it, it gets anywhere near. Um, I think you probably won your argument there. Let's unpick it a little bit. Um, I don't know if you're able to remember, it's a much more sombre question, but did you carry flowers out that night yourself? Yes, we did, yeah. I think it was Ken Trier, our managing director's I was idea. Ask whose idea it was? Yeah, I think it was his. So we all had a bouquet of flowers and we went to four corners of the ground and just chose someone to hand those flowers to. I gave mine to a lady on the opposite side. We got a huge round of applause for that and then we got back into our positions and the huge roar goes up because it's game time. You know, People have 
kind of put Hillsborough to the backs of the minds and now we want to see our team win the title. Now's the time for honesty. As much as you believed in yourselves, as much as you'd achieved quite special things as a team by then, did you believe going into Anfield, you personally, that you were going to be win by two clear goals and win the title? It was a strange one because we went up there in very relaxed manner. It was a what-have-we-got-to-lose type attitude. And when we went out there, I mean, George, going back to his team talk, he pumped us up, cleared our minds of what exactly the challenge was. And I was confident we could do it. And even as the match wore on, as the cop were whistling for the final whistle, I still thought we could do it, which is a bit weird. That's and truly your thought pattern yeah. back then. And a few of my teammates felt the same. I know that. I don't know whether we were deluded or whatever. <laughs> I mean, coming in at half-time, we were disappointed because we'd hardly had an effort on goal. Uh, I think only Baldy's header, that was about it. And we've trooped in, heads down. But George has lifted us saying, brilliant, lads, perfect. You know, We've kept the clean sheet. That's the most important thing. Now, we want to push on a bit, get that first goal. They'll be even more nervous. They're not themselves as it is. They'll be even more nervous. And we'll get that second goal. He was confident. Whether truly inside him he was, he, he claims he was confident, thought we'd actually win by three. But he certainly infused that confidence into us. And we didn't go out thinking, oh, we've got to get two goals, you know, we've got to be adventurous and take risks and that. No. that that's the beauty of his team talks. He'd broken it down for you mentally. Yeah. Get a foothold, yeah. consolidate that. Don't feel you've got to you know, throw men forward. Don't feel that. Keep a clean sheet. It was kind of keep the situation simmering. That's what I like about coaching because that's why you have a, a conductor in front of an orchestra. Everybody can play their instrument. Mm. But it'll be slightly out of tempo or it won't be as crisp unless the conductor is saying, no, 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 no. And he doesn't have to teach you much on that day. But as human beings, not as footballers, you have to make sure your mind isn't clouded with the wrong ideas. Mm. Charge. Just that little bit of... I think I'm wondering on the tape whether it sounds really simple to listeners now. But it's not to, to be that sure about the manner to win, to convince your guys to do it your way and then for it to come off, which is... I want to come back to George after this night and Anfield and talk about managers and coaches who tell you something mm. and then it happens. And the sort of chemical reaction that has in a footballer's brain when a manager says, it's going to be like this mm. if you do this. Guardiola has that at, mm. at Barcelona and Bayern Munich, Manchester City. But picking this night apart at Anfield, the first goal, you score it. And it comes from a free kick, it's, as Arsenal are facing, comes in from the right. Maybe I'm wrong, and, and I'm presuming when you're writing your autobiography, you, you've gone back and looked at mm. this game and the goal a little bit, so I'm not fishing in an empty pool. Tony Adams' run is quite strange and comical, and what, what was going on there? And not taking anything away from Arsenal's achievement, what was the Liverpool defence doing there? That was like primary school. You, and you, you say that, but no, it was I'm, a well-rehearsed move that uh, <laughs> okay. totally right. outwitted them. Come on. Well, I mean, don't ask me what Tony was doing. He, he, he veered off script quite by quite some distance. I mean, that was an Olympic sprint he does. He, He's obviously he, having fun as well. I mean, I'd like to say he threw himself at the ball, but he was nowhere near the ball. But it was a, it was a routine that we had practised, you know, till we were blue in the face on the training ground, and it never used to work <laughs> on a match day. And we'd go, oh, Gaffer, do we have to do this again? You know, it never works, but... You know, if that free kick was on the right, Nigel would swing one in. If it was on the left, maybe Brian Marwood with his right foot would swing one in. 
Um, and there'd be me, Tony and Baldy. One of us, probably Baldy, would peel around the back and me and Tony would attack the ball. On the night, as you say, Tony just threw himself in. He mid-air. started 15, 20 metres back, hasn't he? Yeah, and he was kind of just um, a decoy. Uh, <laughs> Not that he did it intentionally, but it, it, it just enabled me. Perhaps it created some space for me to slip in. It, it, it did. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Mm. The Liverpool guys, as brilliant as they were, are standing looking around going, well, what's happened? Mm. You're allowed to, I mean, it's a nice header. The delivery's fine. It's 1-0. It's going to make you part of the most historic moment in English football. But if George, if you defend like that, George would have taken you into London Colony the next day and shot you all. Mm. Mm. Well, I think that was probably... Um, reflective of how Liverpool were that night. They weren't quite themselves. We sensed that after about 10 minutes. Um, because, you know, if you go into a game knowing you can lose 1-0, it, it can do funny things to your mind, perhaps, whereas our minds were pretty clear. So that that was an advantage for us, I think. We, we pounced on that, the fact that Liverpool weren't at the best that night. Uh, obviously, the whole Hillsborough thing, the number of games they'd had to play leading up to the finale uh, would have played a part as well I mean we played quite a few too but um, yeah maybe on another night they would have defended that free kick better do you remember the ball in the air yeah I'm having fanciful or do you remember the ball in the air coming towards you yeah yeah I do as I say I saw, I saw it coming towards me and I've just tried to get, get something on it and help it on its way I've gone for the left hand corner and yeah Worked perfectly, got a good connection on it, helped it on its way. Whacked into Steve Staunton on the follow-through and kind of gone to celebrate in the far corner with the fans. Was it natural, all natural Alan Smith, or some of the tuition that Stroller George gave you in heading, which most people won't know about? No, George did give me quite a few tips on heading. I mean, I was a good header of the ball when I came to the club, but he was particularly good as a player. and He used to take me through some... Routines and the style of heading, you know. You've just done it there. You just he was like a chicken, the old chicken neck going backwards and forwards, and he'd always blow through his lips like that, you know. Head it like this, Alan. Maker's name. Keep your eyes open. Always look at the maker's name as it's coming towards you. And of course, we'd all take the piss out of him behind his back. But uh, we also knew he knew what he was on about, and he demonstrated as well because he was a young man then, really. Yeah. Early forties was he. Um, and he demonstrated heading the ball, and he could still do it. But, you know, that, that was always one of my fortes. That's just why like I called you, the book you, Heads Up. You guided it in. Yeah. You don't just, if you're trying to get something, but in the end, you actually guide it into that bottom right foot. Yeah, there's different Probably. types of headers, aren't there? But it was kind of, because it was an in-swing, it was almost swinging away from me. So it wasn't a header you could get some power on and really thud it. It was, it was a helping it on its way type. It was a billiard shot. It was a effort. nice glance. I really liked it. Mm. I still think, again, and you can just tell me I'm stupid, but I think your part in the second goal, from the way I look at football, was one to be much more proud of, in my opinion. You talked about George saying, don't lose the ball, Alan. You know, don't give it away. Hold it up. And, and that maybe that restricted you. In the book, uh, and today, you'll often use phrases about being bored or laborious or not seeing the point or whatever but and maybe it was natural maybe you're going to do it anyway without being coached by George and that ball comes down and the Marshall's right you control it the control itself is, is exquisite but the brain's working and, and you're little I know where Mickey Thomas is and I know what I'm going to do with this and although Liverpool still have to make a mistake for him to get through and score the little take and lay off 
time it and put the ball right where it needs to be for him. You can't have done many more precise things no. in your career. No, I think if there's one moment in my career that I had to pick as the best, that would be it. Yes. Yeah. Everything was perfect. Yeah. The touch was perfect and the little flick, because I had to do it so quickly. And that was me at my best. You know, I was always known for a silky soft touch. A lot of people thought I was left footed because I used to practice as a kid so much with my left foot controlling it off the brick wall at the side of our mum and dad's house. Uh, and I naturally would take it in with my left. Almost that was a softer foot to control it with as, than my right. If I had to take a penalty, I'd take it with my right. But it came in perfectly. Lee fizzed it in, to be fair. So I had to take a chance on the turn. And luckily it worked. And um, it, it's just so pleasing on a night where it matters so much that you have a good game, that you, you do what you want to do and you respond to the challenge, you step up. And that's gratifying looking back that, mm. you know, I was able to produce something approaching my best that night. But yeah, that, that moment, yeah, it, it was, probably is the highlight. You said Iceman at Bergkamp, didn't you, before? It was Bergkamp-esque. Well, I mean, no, no, I'm, I would I'm never serious. include myself in the same sense. I'm not talking Dennis. about across a career, but that no. was. Mm. You know, if, if he'd done that, he'd feel the same about it as you do, I mm. think. Yeah. I think yeah. technically that's how gifted that moment was. Mm. Also, the brain's whirring all the time. Maybe you tell me that you didn't have to think, that it was instinctive. I don't know, but, you know, your brain's working. It wasn't just technique that made that happen. Maybe a bit of panic as well, I don't know. The fact I thought, I've, well, I've just got to turn first time here because the whistle's going to go. Um, and then seeing the flash of yellow and blue jersey in my peripheral vision, being Mickey making a, a storming run, just flicked it through. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd had a great season that year. I obviously ended up winning the Golden Boot. I was I was flying in terms of confidence, so I felt I could try things like that, and I was confident they'd come off. There are only three modern players, modern day players, who won the Golden Boot more than you. Um, Shearer and Henri being two of them, and there's only six guys ever in the history of this division have won the Golden Boot more than you did. And before I talk about your goal scoring, I'll ask you about your goal scoring again. Can I go back on that theme again, if, if it's a waste of time, tell me. But we, we, in, in this series, we've often talked to footballers and coaches about belief systems and teaching and communication. And when, uh, when I began this series, I talked too much about Barcelona because it's my reference point. I've lived there for 17 years and I've been lucky enough to be shown a lot by the players in the club. But when they began to talk about the great footballers who won under Pep Guardiola at Barcelona, they began to talk about, it's ludicrous. He tells us what to do. He tells us why we've got to do that. He tells us what will happen if we do it, and it does. And therefore, we just follow. It's like a cult. And and George, it seems to me, reading your book and and talking today, and also listening to George over the years, it, it feels as if George had something about that. I mean, much different to yeah. Guardiola, I would imagine. He didn't tell you, he didn't say to you, do this and this will happen. And, and for example, it must have seemed when he, when he indoctrinated the defensive system, that's the back four, about what to do, and then it was always 1 0 to the Arsenal. Mm. It must have seemed like, well, he's a guru. Everything he says happens, so we'll do it. It just, it, I mean, it all came from hard work, didn't it? Obviously, the back four, the number of hours they would practice. Uh, on that training ground the team shape that we would go through so we all knew our individual roles it was you didn't have to think about it really in in a way so that's that's where George's football wasn't so much off the cuff you know certainly wasn't off the cuff it was quite 
quite regimented, but in a good way. Uh, I mean, we did have players that could express themselves as long as they did it in the right areas, the likes of Rocky and Merce, you know, top skill, flair players. But with George, he knew what he wanted from us. He knew exactly what he wanted and he, he felt that would be successful. And of course, once it was successful, he gains more belief and we gain more belief from it. Is that, is that drilling? I've often thought that, you know, Tony called his first book Addicted. Hmm. And I think it helped George to have somebody with an addictive personality to, to, to train it over and over mm. and over and over again and do it right and do it right and do it right. And I think that Tony's leadership and his football skills and his athleticism aside, I think it actually helped that he had a very addictive person. I mean, don't get me wrong, the lads had moan about it. Oh, we're not doing defensive shape again, are we? You know, And it would be me and Merce and Brian Marwood, Rocky, trying to break them down. And we'd all have a good moan that... God, again, you know, this is the third time this week. But, of course, when you go out on a Saturday, on a match day, and you've got that, you've got that knowledge in you that we know what to do here, and it just it gives you so much confidence, and that, that back four would tell you. It, it became second nature, doing what they didn't know, almost, what they were doing, covering each other, how they were in relation to each other. Uh, and, that, and that, you know, there's no secret to it. It is hard work, uh, and the talent of a of a great coach. That was part one. Hope you enjoyed it. On Monday, there really are special things to come. Difficult things. I had no idea about the way in which Alan Smith had to not only wrestle with making a partnership with Ian Wright, but how much he suffered in failing to do that. It stays with him, and this is the first time I think he's really talked about it in some depth. It also accounts for the way he felt so down for nearly three years towards the end of his career. We talk about the way in which footballers are not held to the same standards as ordinary people and, and therefore their problems, their mental health issues, their emotional worries can go completely unnoticed and untouched. But the pleasant side of part two will include how it was that Arsenal... Arsenal have only won two European trophies, can you believe that? How they did it the last time, well, Monday, Alan Smith will tell you. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a social, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 